so often the case with God's Word, there is difficulty. Difficulty sometimes in the understanding of it. Sometimes the difficulty manifests itself as following it. And sometimes in one passage, we have difficulty with both. Both in the understanding of the text and in its heeding. As we continue in 1 Peter chapter 3, that might be the case today. It certainly has been with me. I want to begin by reading the final verses from last time, and this will act as a pivot from the last section about servants and wives and husbands to today's scripture, which will technically begin 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. We are going to begin in verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you would inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against evildoers. In this set of verses, Peter quotes King David in Psalm 34. Peter is saying, All of you be harmonious, be as one, in sync, row in the same direction, in loving humility, be about speaking not evil insults, but blessings. Edmund Clowney wrote, The Christian's knowledge of the blessing that he will receive from the Lord encourages and enables him to bless others, even his enemies. And that is a hard, hard thing to do. It's hard to believe that we're to do that. That that is an expectation. Verse 10, Peter continues, For the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Peter is telling his audience then and now how to live even if persecution comes. And as we've seen in the letter thus far, we should expect tough days ahead, tough days of suffering and opposition. Even if, even if these days come, we are to mind our mouths. We are to mind our mouths. Look at verse 11. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. We have to make an effort to turn from the bad to do good, to seek peace and pursue it. Why do we have to be so intentional? Well, it's not our natural drift. All of those verbs there, to make an effort to turn, to do good, to make peace, to pursue it, we have to be intentional. We saw earlier in 1 Peter that we should trust in the sovereignty of God and His justice when it comes to settling up with those who persecute us. Clowney goes on to say something else of interest regarding evil and insult. It is not only in the world that Christians must repay evil with good. They must do it in the church, too. Oh, my goodness. Certainly, this attitude of loving humility will provide the strongest rebuke to the conscience of a fellow Christian. 
even if, even if these days come, we must mind our mouths. We represent Christ. Peter has told us that we represent Christ and we are to look and live and speak differently. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against evildoers. The eyes of the Lord are watching his children. One Bible scholar wrote the following. If Christ, the model of meekness under persecution, and we've seen in recent days, uh, we've been reminded of Christ. That picture of humility, when he rode in on the donkey on Palm Sunday, the crowds were were going crazy, but he rode in gentle and humble. And then on the night of, of his arrest, when he stood at that mock trial and was persecuted, and he was bad-mouthed and he was beaten, his strength was under control. And that's the definition of meekness, is strength under control. Well, this scholar wrote, if Christ, the model of meekness under persecution, is watching, we not only need no passionate self-defense, but we should be ashamed to use it. If his eyes are watching us, we need to let the fear of the Lord dictate our behavior. Question, do we believe that God sees all? Do we believe that God knows all? Even if, even if suffering comes, can we trust the Lord with our future to the degree that we are able to speak blessings to our enemies? Let me say that one more time. Even if, even if suffering comes, can we trust the Lord with our future to the degree that we can speak blessing to our enemies? That's a tough question. Let's go on to verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be in dread. Often, suffering is counterintuitive to the way we view our walks of faith. Edmund Clowney points out the connection between suffering and blessing. He wrote, Christians should therefore not think it strange that they are called to endure persecution, yet they must understand that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. What did Jesus himself say in his Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus said the following, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Peter says in verse 15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Look there at verse 15. Be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Does that mean that we've got to give an answer like a Sunday school teacher? Or do we have to sound like Billy Graham? No, no. The most convincing argument one can make 
is the difference in personal experience before Jesus and since Jesus, before Jesus coming in and changing your life and, and since this has happened, the old line of the old hymn, I once was blind, but now I see. And here's why. Wayne Grudem points out the following. Since the questioning is concerning the hope that is in you, Peter must be assuming that the inward hope of Christians results in lives so noticeably different that unbelievers are prompted to ask why they are so distinctive. You know, it's not just what we say, it's how we live, and Peter has been pointing this out the entire time. If you and I have trusted in what Christ has done for us on the cross, we will look and live differently than those who haven't trusted in Christ. I like what Grudem says about being ready. In hostile situations, the opportunity for witness to Christ often comes unexpectedly. The Christian who is not always ready to answer will miss it. Let me read that one more time. In hostile situations, the opportunity for witness to Christ often comes unexpectedly. The Christian who is not always ready to answer will miss it. Even if, even if you and I are talked about, our lives should be lived in such a way that our lives support our testimony, what we say. When we sin, and we will, we should be quick to seek the Lord and turn from those things, repent from those things, which damage our witness. Even if, even if we are slandered, we want the words of the slanderers to be wrong. We want to point them to the gospel. Verse 17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Here we see again this picture of suffering for doing right. Despite the injustice of the situation, Peter says that this is better. Why? Clowney shares why he agrees with Peter. A clear conscience gives stamina and faithfulness to a Christian's witness. I like that. Let me read that again. A clear conscience gives stamina and faithfulness to a Christian's witness. He knows that the malicious slander that he hears is untrue. He can therefore wait patiently for the truth to win out. His detractors may be ashamed sooner than he thinks. It may be, however, that their shame will be evident only when Christ returns to judge. Question. If God should will it so that we will suffer for doing what is right, do we really believe the truth will win out? If we trust the Lord to make all things right, what we're saying is that even if we don't see the resolution of the situation, if we don't see justice done in our time, we know that the Lord will make it right in His time. Let me say that again. If we trust the Lord to make all things right, we are saying that even if we don't see the resolution to the situation and we don't see justice done in our time, we know that the Lord will make it right in His. 
Clowney adds the following, In any case, even if persecution and suffering do not end, the Christian knows that he is in God's will and that to suffer for doing good brings blessing. And then Clowney says this, To invite the scorn and hostility of others by doing evil would be quite another matter. As we've seen this entire time with 1 Peter, we represent Christ. We are to do no evil, even if, even if we are to do no evil. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's the first of two very curious statements in this passage. Grudem gives us some explanation here. The contrast put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, fits in with the whole letter's emphasis on the relative unimportance of temporary suffering in this world compared to the enjoying of an eternal inheritance in the next. He makes a contrast between the relative unimportance of temporary suffering in this world compared to the enjoying of an eternal inheritance in the next. Our Lord willingly suffered physical harm, even death, for the sake of the eternal spiritual gain that he might bring us to God. And Peter's audience should not therefore be surprised to find themselves following in his steps. And, and for us, in, in these days, look there at the first part of verse 18. Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. That phrase, once for all time, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 27, And just as it is destined for people to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. If you don't hear anything else, Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross, is sufficient to pay our sin debt once for all time. His death removes our guilt. What does this mean and why does this matter? Well, I know folks that don't treat Christ's offering as sufficient. They would never say that. And, and if, we're, if we're honest, if we're all honest, we've all done this. We don't mean to, but we don't treat Christ's offering as sufficient. We want to keep crucifying ourselves over and over and over again. And we want to keep replaying all of these bad things that we've done in our mind over and over and over again. And really, that's the enemy trying to beat us down, trying to weigh us down. If we have trusted in what Jesus has done, then he has taken our sin debt and he's paid it once for all time. Jesus is sufficient. Let me read verse 18 one more time, going into the next verse. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. 
who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Peter was just talking about Christ's suffering and death and then being made alive in the Spirit. And now there's talk about spirits in prison and Noah and the ark and baptism. This is a real head-scratcher. We've talked about one very curious statement. Well, 19 contains the second very curious statement about spirits in prison. A lot has been written a lot has been interpreted and argued by church-loving, Christ-honoring Bible teachers throughout the history of the church. Persons who love Jesus, who love the church, who love the body of Christ, can't agree on what this scripture means. And there's been a lot said, lots about demons in prison, lots said about Jesus descending into hell to preach to sinners from Old Testament times. There's lots of stuff over lots of centuries debating what this means. Well, let's see what the text says. Let's look at some clues which Peter gives us in the text. Peter mentions Noah in verse 20. And I want you to think about Noah for just a moment. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and following, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord brought judgment by flood, but he would spare Noah, Mrs. Noah, their three sons, and the wives of those three through the ark. That's eight persons. Peter knew the story of Noah. He grew up in in temple. He was of Jewish background, but he also heard Jesus point to Noah. Way back in our kingdom encounter in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is pointing to his second coming. Jesus says, But about that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's reasonable to make the connection that Peter saw a correlation between Noah's culture and his own. Just like we can see similarities between Noah's sin-sick society and our very own. It's also reasonable for Peter to see Noah as a prophet of the Lord to all of those wicked lives in his day who no doubt made Noah suffer. They slandered Noah. They persecuted Noah. They they mistreated him. And Wayne Grudem, he provides an extended paraphrase 
of those two verses, verse 19 and 20, he, he rewords them. And he connects Jesus to Noah. Grudem writes, In the spiritual realm of existence, Christ went and preached through Noah to those who are now spirits in the prison of hell. This happened when they formerly disobeyed, when the patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. When Jesus first came, he preached repentance due to the coming judgment. And years and years and years before that, Noah had done the exact same thing as he and his family were building the ark. They were a witness to what the Lord was going to do. Wayne Grudem goes on to say, In its context, this passage thus functions, and he gives three ways. He says, number one, this passage functions to encourage the readers to bear witness boldly in the midst of hostile believers, just as Noah did. Number two, the passage functions to assure the audience that though they are few, God will surely save them. The third function of this passage is to remind the audience of this certainty of final judgment and Christ's ultimate triumph over all the forces of evil which oppose them. And this passage, similarly understood, can provide similar encouragement to Peter's readers today. Peter says that eight were brought safely through the water of judgment which Peter then connects in verse 21 to new life given to us by Jesus' resurrection, symbolized in the waters of baptism. Baptism doesn't save us. Jesus' death on the cross does. As Jesus defeated sin and death and hell by being raised to life, we will be raised too. On three separate occasions, each distinct, each separate, each at different times, I had the privilege of baptizing my children, and at each one of their baptisms, I said the following. I asked each one of them, In whom do you place your trust? And each one said, In Jesus Christ my Lord. I then said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I baptized them, and then as I brought them up from the water, I said, You're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Even if, even if suffering will come, aren't we glad, aren't we glad that we have a Savior at the right hand of God interceding for us? A Savior who has already been made sovereign over all things. A Savior who has given us victory in Himself.